Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-341 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we have a great chat with John the Hammer Young. John is a proud father, a husband, a teacher, a triathlete, a marathoner, and I hunted John down to get an interview when I passed him at the Boston Marathon this year. It was one of those flashes in time during the marathon, one of those moments in the disjointed flow of images as you fade in and out of race consciousness. And I remember passing John, looking at him and seeing his kit and thinking, geez, that guy's a stud. I bet he has a great story. And then I saw him hamming for a picture with Brian Lyons, uh, who pushes Rick Hoyt in the marathon. And I inquired and we connected. And today, you and I get to share the fruit of that conversation. As you listen to our conversation, you'll hear me circling around the subject at hand, because frankly, we've got ourselves a bit of a catch-22 situation. The reason I wanted to pick John's brain is that he competes or is an athlete with dwarfism, and I don't say suffers from or is afflicted by on purpose, because John is way more than you or I or anyone could pigeonhole as a little person. In fact, he's just a great guy, a committed endurance athlete, and we could all learn something from him. But the fact that I wanted to talk to him about it is a bit at odds with John's narrative of being an athlete. So as with so many of us, John doesn't want to change the world or intrude a message into the conversation Like all of us, he just wants to pursue his sport and to swim and to bike and to run and to test himself and set an example for his family and his community. It's a great chat. In section one, I'm going to talk you through a speed workout that Coach has given me a couple times, and I'll talk through the execution and the purpose and hopefully give you another tool for for your box. In section two, I'll give you a working example of some tricks and tools of writing a compelling speech or talk. Now, remember, the Run, Run, Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. We do this by offering a membership option where members get access to exclusive members-only audio, like race reports and essays and other bits just for you. And I also 
chunk out the individual intros, outros, section one, section two, and featured interviews all are available as standalone MP3s, so you can download and listen to those individually if one takes your interest. For the cost, think about it, for the cost of a used DVD on eBay of the movie Francesco, which is a two-hour and 35 dramatic recreation of the story of the life of St. Francis Assisi made in 1988 starring a young Mickey Rourke before he got all weird and creepy and Helen Bonham Carter as, I guess, the saint's teenage love interest. Well, for that cost, you can either have that or you can be a member of the Run Run Live support crew. Links are in the show notes and at runrunlive.com. I had a bit of a scare coming off that crazy May that I had with the travel and being under the weather. I had a couple of easy long runs, and when I got back and posted my heart rate, I noticed that my heart rate flipped on me in the second half, and I thought the old AFib might be back, but everything seems to be cool now. I did call my heart doctor, and they freaked out a bit. I just sort of casually mentioned that I had a follow-up appointment coming in. Oh, by the way, it's probably nothing, but I got a couple anomalous heart rate readings, and they freaked out. They wanted me to wear one of those 24-hour-a-day heart rate monitors, the vest things, and luckily they seem to have lost their enthusiasm in their bureaucracy, and I haven't heard from them in a week or so, so I'll probably get a bill for the phone call. If you stop getting podcasts, you may want to drive up to Massachusetts and start looking for me in the woods, in the trails, behind my house. I'm doing a lot of long trail runs. I've related to you before how in the span of two to three weeks where I live, the forest just explodes into verdancy. It just gets green. My woods are all fairly mature trees, and when they leaf out, there is this dense canopy over and around the trail, and it's like running through a green, living, soft, and womb-like tunnel, or green mansions, as William Henry Hudson put it. The forest becomes a living entity and a nurturing character in my life play. I've got a new system where I take Buddy, the old wonder dog, out for the first two-mile loop, and then I drop him at the house and head back out for the meat of my run. And that's enough time for him to get a little freedom and pride of accomplishment without tweaking his hips too bad. I even got my first mountain bike ride of the season in, and I forgot how much fun it is to hit the trails on my 29er, Mr. Moto. And when I say hit the trails, I do usually end up face down in the mud bleeding at some point. But I'm always surprised at how quickly the technique comes back. It's like, well, wait for it. It's like riding a bike. It makes me wonder if I shouldn't do another mountain bike ultra at some point this fall. I had a great run this past Sunday out in the trails. I did maybe 10 miles or so for a bit over an hour and a half at a casual pace. It was overcast and sprinkling when I dropped Buddy and headed back out, and then it advanced to a steady rain and then to a downpour. But In the woods, the rain is filtered through the canopy, so it coagulates into these big, warm dollops of water that drain from the trees on you. It's glorious. And when I got back, I was totally soaked, like wet t-shirt contest, soaked. Just went swimming, soaked. So I went upstairs to my master bathroom to strip off my wet stuff, 
and I noticed that the gutter outside the window over the hot tub was clogged and not draining. So I opened the window to see if I could reach up and get the leaves out of it. It's still pouring buckets of rain, and it's all cascading out of the clogged gutter down me in the house. And I was finally able to tease it out with an appropriately MacGyvered coat hanger. So here's the picture that you won't be able to get out of your mind. Stark naked, soaking wet man, hanging out a second story window in a driving rainstorm, fiddling at the gutter with a bent coat hanger. You're welcome. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. A speed workout for a change of pace. I got asked by a non-running co-worker this week what the best workouts were to stay in shape. Was it the low-effort aerobic stuff like running and walking? Was it the high-intensity stuff like CrossFit? Was it the strength-building stuff like weights? And I paused for a second, searching for a short answer. But then I realized this was another one of those reductionist attempts that we're so fond of in the modern world. And the answer I eventually came up with was, well, you have to do it all. You have to do the long aerobic stuff to build up your heart and lungs and the rest of that plumbing, but you also have to work in some strength to keep yourself strong and functional. And the same is true with your running routine. Too many of us fall into the lots of long, slow miles rut, and that's fine. It will keep you relatively fit, but it's still a rut. But it's difficult to do everything. When you're training for a specific event, like a marathon, you necessarily shift the focus of your workouts to that event. And even when you shift the balance, you still have to maintain some strength and flexibility, or you become fragile, especially as you get older. And that's a roundabout way of saying speed work is important as part of your training. So the types and mix of workouts will shift over time as well. If you're training for a race, the balance and mix of workouts and that focus will shift as you progress through the training cycle. So without further ado and kerfuffle, let me walk you through a simple speed workout you can mix into your training at any point. My coach, Jeff, at PRS Fit, he drops these into my schedule every once in a while, especially during taper weeks. The basic outline for this type of workout is a series of pickups at faster than your 5k pace. You warm up, you do a set of pickups or repeats with a recovery, and then you warm down. And these are really easy to program into your running watch. At least they're easy for me to turn into a Garmin workout on my watch on my 310 XT. First you warm up well. Most people will scrimp on their warm ups because they want to get to the good stuff, but If you're going to be pushing your machine to faster or harder efforts than it is used to, you need to make sure you warm up well. I usually warm up for at least 10 minutes, and for shorter workouts, I'll I'll warm up for 20. What does warm-up mean? It means for 20 minutes, you'll just run super easy. Focus on settling into a low effort level. You shouldn't be breathing hard. Your heart rate should be in the zone 2 or lower. And keep your form nice and clean, short, quick, light strides. You shouldn't be working hard. And when you get to the workout part of the show, you're going to do a series of short pickups. 
You can measure these either by time or distance. For the short pickups, I would suggest time. Do 20 to 30 seconds for each pickup with a 20 to 30 second recovery. If you have a cross-country racing background, you, re you may remember these as the 30-30 workout. So alternately, though, you can use distance. If you're on a track, this is probably in the 75 to 100 meter range for the pickup and then the same distance for the recovery. If you're out on the road, it might be the distance between two telephone poles. So the effort level for these is not an all-out sprint. The effort level is 20 to 30 seconds per mile faster than your 5K pace. So if you race your last 5K at an average of 7-minute miles, then your target for the pickup would be a 630, 640, 650, somewhere in that range, right? And if you want to use effort level, it's a zone 4 or 5, or about a 75 to 80% effort. However, you're measuring these. I wouldn't try to look at your watch during the pickup because the repeats are too short for either pace or effort level to catch up on your running watch. Just do them by feel. Run at what feels like an 80% effort. And how many should you do? Well, that's a good question. I usually do 20 with a 20-minute warm-up and a 20-minute cool-down and 20 by 30-second pickup with a 20 by 30-second recovery. That's a nice round hour if you do the math. If you want more, you can do more. If you're not as fit or not used to doing speed work, do less. But the secret sauce, the secret sauce here is not the mechanics. The secret sauce is in how you execute the pickups. When the timer goes off, you don't put your head down and drop into a dead sprint. When the timer starts, you smoothly accelerate up to speed. You make sure to use great form. This is all about form. Straighten up, run tall, head up, hands loose and high with an easy, relaxed arm swing, shoulders relaxed, face relaxed, hands relaxed. Push your hips forward like you're being pulled by the belt buckle. Lean forward at the ankles. Rapid, light foot plants on the forefoot. Foot comes up high behind you on the follow-through. The knee lifts high into the next stride. Form, not effort, is the secret sauce here. And once you have the form, you can increase the turnover of your stride to go faster. And that's how you smoothly and with power accelerate into the pickup speed. Then you hold that effort until the timer buzzes. Then you smoothly return to whatever comfortable jog you want to do the recovery at. I know some of you are walkers, but I don't walk in my recoveries. The goal of the recovery is to have your heart rate return into zone two or as close as you can get it before you start the next acceleration. And it's actually a decently hard workout if you do enough reps. Uh, the cool thing about this workout is anybody, anybody, anybody can run hard for 30 seconds. And as you get towards the end of the session, the cumulative work catches up with you and it gets challenging. So what do you get out of this workout? You get to practice a higher level of effort. You get to practice finding and maintaining good form at a higher level of effort. You get the strength benefit and the stride efficiency benefit of speed work. And you get the practice transitioning between different levels of effort and recovering. 
All these things are beneficial and can't be had from just running miles. So you don't have to drop into crazy hard speedwork programs to get speedwork. You can get a lot of the benefit and keep your training balanced by working in a couple simple workouts every once in a while. And now for today's featured interview. Well, John Young, how are you today? I'm doing very well. You're a famous guy. Uh, infamous, maybe. I don't know. People hey, people are getting to know me a little bit, yeah. Yeah, anybody who gets a Runner's World article, that was an awesome Runner's World article that you got uh, is a famous person in my book. Thanks. So, yeah, that's that's my, one of my uh, life goals is to somehow get into uh, Runner's World. So why don't you give us the, the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking? I'll try and, and do 200 words or less, but you might have to cut me off. My wife says I tend to ramble a little bit. All right. But uh, I'm uh, John Young, 50 years old, living in Salem, Mass., uh, originally from Toronto, where I lived and, and grew up and, and uh, was married. And then in 1999, uh, after teaching for nine years, my wife and I left Canada and moved to Hong Kong for four years, where I taught. And our son, Owen, who's now 13, was born there. And then we moved to Massachusetts in uh, 2003. And sometime around 2005 or 2006, my wife was a little concerned about my health and encouraged me to go to the doctor. And um, after finally listening to her after the third or fourth or fifth attempt, uh, I was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea. And uh, at that time, I weighed about 195 pounds and, and had a bit of a wake-up call. Wow. And so I was prescribed a CPAP machine, which I started to use right away and immediately started to get back some, some energy. And I'd always been a swimmer, so I got back into swimming and then was riding my bike a little bit, nothing crazy, four or five miles at a time. And and then somebody sent me a, a video of Dick and Rick Hoyt doing an Ironman. And I kind of saw that and thought, wow, if if Dick can do that with his son, you know, maybe I can do a, a, a sprint triathlon. And so in 2009, I signed up for my first and did a race in Salem and Lowell and kind of was hooked. And luckily, I got to meet the Hoyts relatively soon after that one. And, and we've become pretty good friends. And through them, I've also become good friends with Brian Lyons. And here I am now in my eighth year of racing triathlon, and I absolutely adore that and, and marathon running and everything else that goes along with it. That's awesome. I asked Brian because I remember passing you at Boston this year and seeing the, the singlet and seeing you and going, wow, that guy's amazing. i got to talk to him. And then I saw you in a picture with Brian, so I said, hey, Brian, who is that? Put us together. So, I mean, the amazing thing about you is that you've got some uh, challenges in terms of running, right? Yeah, like I have dwarfism. The medical term that I have is called achondroplasia. It's the most common form of dwarfism. And, you know, I've been this way my entire life, shorter than everyone that I kind of know. Ever since my earliest recollection, starting to mingle with other people, I realized everyone else was taller than me. And, and believe it or not, most doctors kind of tell us to shy away from running because of the pressure they think that it actually puts on your lower back. And, and I've actually found the opposite. And I get more discomfort from sitting around or from standing than I do from running. And so I continue to do it as much as I can. But Brian, I kind of hooked up with him probably my second or third year into this stuff. And I've done a lot of races with him. And, and now that he's pushing Rick, I've done a lot of races with the two of them as well. And we kind of, Rick and I joke around 
uh, a lot. He likes to tease me about the fact that I'm shorter than everyone else. And coming from him, I know it's all in, in good fun. And I'm always constantly teasing him that one day when they pass me, maybe in the next marathon, I might just kind of latch onto the chair and, and all three of us can go cruising together. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, McGilvery now, too, which is great for him because I didn't know there was anybody who Dave could look tall next to, right? So it's great for McGilvery. Oh, yeah. He says that all the time. And, <laughs> and yeah, he's he's a another a really good close friend of mine, and, and I enjoy And I'm not saying that kind of just to name drop. I kind of look up to Dave and all the stuff he's done. Reading the, his book, The Last Pick, there's lots of similarities within his life and, and mine, you know, when it came to sports Tend, people tend to look at shorter people and think that they can't do a lot of the same things. And, and so, yeah, on teams and stuff, I was always the last one picked, but always kind of went out there and, and did my best. And my son, who's now 13, also has the same type of dwarfism. And, and he experienced a lot of those same things. But I think with him seeing me run and, and do triathlons and coming in near last place, but still happy about what I've done and, and kind of just looking at my own personal achievement, you know, that I run faster than I did last year when I did this race or am I improving in another aspect of my race? It's hard to tell 13-year-olds to do this because they just kind of words go in one ear and out the other. But when he sees me actually out there doing it, I think it's rubbed off on him because he does karate and he does flag football and, and really enjoy and he does track and field now too and he really enjoys what he does and he's starting to already look at the personal aspect and how can he be better and he doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about how he compares to other people. Yeah, and in some sense, your trajectory, you know, that that you just laid out in terms of getting to your mid-30s and being overweight and kind of starting to suffer from that is similar to so many other people in our lives, right? And you're lucky to have that community in Salem there. You just happen to be in the hotbed of uh, triathlons and running in the community here. I'm very lucky. I got up this morning and and drove up to a local pond just north of here and did a one and a half mile open water swim early in the morning before school even starts. And then tonight I'm going to go running with a group of people in Lynn Woods. And then tomorrow morning I'm actually planning on cycling to work. I consider myself very lucky in the fact that I can do all three aspects of that sport with relative ease. And I'm not kind of just bound to a pool or a treadmill or training down in the basement all the time. When I was past, when I passed you at Boston this year, I'm thinking to myself, oh, there's a guy who has to take two or three times as many strides as I do to cover this distance. That's a lot of, um, I guess, persistence in one sense, right? It is, but it, these are also the legs I was born with, and I don't know a mile to me and a mile to you. It's, it's the same distance, and I know how many steps it takes me, and it, it is going to take me a little bit longer to get there. But I think one of the things mentally that I've done is I take any large or long race that I have to do and break it up into very manageable bits. And even when I run the marathon and my best time now is a 550, I even now break up every single marathon into 10 minute intervals. And I, I basically run for nine minutes and I walk for a minute. And I find if I break it up into those 10 minute blocks, the time really does fly by. And if I looked at the entire race, oh, I've got to run 26.2 miles. I really don't think I would be able to wrap my mind around that. Yeah, that's a great tip. You you still have to qualify for Boston, don't you? I do. Uh, my first time into Boston, I got an invitational entry. But to qualify, I need to run a sub-six marathon. And I've done that twice now. And that's for the mobility-impaired division that I'm in. I have to qualify in under six hours. Awesome. 
Yeah. People don't realize that, that even in the mobility impaired, you have to still qualify for Boston. Yep. All right. So you say you're a great example here for your son, for other people. You know, and we have this whole community with uh, Rick and Dick and Brian and all these other people. You probably know Eric Manzer, too, my, my friend who's in the uh, triathlon space, who's a vision impaired racer. I've raced with Eric many times. Yep. We know each other very well. Yeah, I like to say I got Eric into running because <laughs> we were in the same Toastmasters group and I was doing presentations on marathons. So, And that was when he was just starting to lose his sight to macular uh, degeneration. So, so yeah, he's done really well. He's a great triathlete. Yes. How's your life changed being famous now with all this uh, tension from the uh, runner's world and all these uh, news stories and that sort of thing? Well, my wife would say that it's changed a lot. It's, you know, Sometimes my head's probably a little bit too big to, to go in some doorways, and I'm always, I try not to let it change me in a lot of ways, but I think what I look at is you talk about inspiring other people, and I really don't look to kind of inspire the everyday kind of person who's out there, because if they're running and they, they see me running and they're like, wow... If that guy can do it, maybe I can too. I think that's a lot of the wrong reasons to be doing it because you need that self-motivation. What I do kind of hope for is I hope that other physically challenged people see me out there because a lot of times we're told for years and years and years, you, know, you can't do that. You've got dwarfism. You can't do that. You've got cerebral palsy or you can't do that. Or you're visually impaired. And I know people that care about you are saying that because they're worried and they want to make sure you're safe. But... That's not, I really don't try to follow that adage. And my mother always used to say when I was very young, if you want John Young to do something, tell him he can't. And that's always kind of been my motivation. I've done seven half Ironman races, and I've signed up to do my first full Ironman next October. And oh, and I'm, sh- yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are people out there that will think I can't do it. And I know that there'll probably be days that I think I, I'm not going to be able to accomplish this, but I hope that I, I kind of stay motivated and focused and follow my coach's plan, and, and I'm there on race day, and, and I'll do my best to get to that finish line. Yeah, so the run's probably going to be the hardest part for you then, right, of all the sports? Well, it is, but I'm getting faster, and, and again, I honestly think the bike is going to be the challenge in terms of getting off in enough time, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, things are going well, and knock on wood, I, I'm pretty relatively free from injury, and and, uh, you know, I've just got to stay focused and work on it bit by bit as opposed to just looking at today and saying, how am I going to get to where I need to be on race day? It's 120 odd days away. And yeah, that time will fly by. Yeah. You just have to have a good plan and say, what do I have to do today? What do I have to do this morning? And the race will take care of itself. Right. Yep. Yeah. So what's what's your training look like? It sounds like you're doing a lot. I'm pretty much six days a week. Uh, once the summer comes, I'll start with some more double workouts. But I've usually got uh, two bike days or th- three run days and a swim, and that's pretty much it. My mileage is building up now. Uh, I did 60 miles on the weekend or 65 on the weekend. I've got 70 coming up this weekend. My long runs are right now kind of hovering around 10 to 12 miles. And, yeah. and I've got to get some more mileage on that bike, and I think I'll be okay. Yeah, well, it's a good good time of year for that up here. Yep. Yep. So who do you look for for inspiration? Who inspires you? Probably my my son, just because I remember back to when I was his age. And, you know, I grew up in Canada and there wasn't a real organized group for little people of Canada up where I was. And and they were there, but they didn't have the exposure that, that they do now. And 
So I never really met another little person until I was 15. I grew up in a family of other people that were average size. And, and so I look at him and I kind of, I hope that I'm doing the, the best job I can to be a dad, to kind of get out there and show him that he can try anything he wants. And I, he ran the mile yesterday for his track team for the first time ever. And, and I was really happy to watch him run around that track and run the entire time. And even had some energy to sprint at the end. And he's already faster than I am in a mile. And I kind of look at him and, and I feed off of him and obviously Dick and Rick, but I, I don't know if they're inspirations now more so as just as almost like colleagues in, in the running world. And I just like to kind of do my best to keep up with them. Yeah. And you, you talked about having some exposure and having some access now. Do you have a purpose now, a higher or a bigger purpose through your running? Something you want to accomplish? Well, again, I, you know, I've got this desire to do an Ironman, but I, I really, unfortunately, dwarfism is still one of the physical challenges that there are a segment of the population that think it's okay to make fun of people that have short stature, and we're still the butt of jokes, and a lot of times, when it comes from a friend that knows me and, and, and whatever, I, you know, it's all tongue-in-cheek, and you laugh at life, and that's what it's all about, but when you see people thinking it's okay to still make fun of you and ridicule you, that's kind of what angers me and, and upsets me, and I hope that me getting out there and running and cycling and being out on the streets and visible will hopefully be an example to young people that it doesn't matter kind of what body you have and what you look like, you can still have dreams and goals and aspirations and you shouldn't be kind of pigeonholed into one segment of the population just simply because of what you look like. And I go and, and I do talks at middle schools and, and elementary schools and talk to kids about having goals and dreams. And But a lot of it is just looking at a body and not saying, well, that body is best suited for this because of what it looks like or that gender or that ethnicity or whatever. And you should be able to have your dreams and, and goals and, and have them whatever you want. We're talking to a couple thousand runners right now, you and I. What do you wish they would understand or do or say uh, differently or in the future? What would you like to accomplish with them if you could talk to them, if they were in a room and you were talking to them? I think for them, they need to kind of look, you know, whatever purpose they want in life, or and if that is, is through their running or through their triathlon, again, it has to kind of be something internal. Uh, I might be the spark that gets them going. They might see me and they might think, wow, if this guy can do that, maybe I can try this. But there has to be some internal fuel to keep that going. And don't just look at me as an inspiration because of the shell that I have. Understand the training and the planning and kind of the motivation that keeps me going. And nothing I hate worse than looking at a picture that somebody puts on Facebook and it's like, let's say, of an amputee runner. And then all it says is, what's your excuse? As if because that person's physically challenged, their life is any more different than yours. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. A good message for people. All right, so what's the future hold, John, after this Ironman? You going to go run across the country with McGillivray again or get anything special? No, I've promised my wife that I'm not, you know, I might do another Ironman, but I don't see like a double Ironman or an ultra marathon. I love running and I and I like what I do, but I, I deep down, I think I'm old enough to know that I, I can't just keep <laughs> setting a new goal. Yeah, like I said, I might keep doing, you know, who knows, maybe Kona someday. I don't know. I'm happy just staying healthy and, and staying happy and enjoying what I'm doing. I think I saw that you were going to run that uh, that Runner's World uh, 
festival of races that they're doing in Massachusetts, yeah, I'm, right? I'm doing, Up in Andover? Yeah, I'm doing the half marathon on Sunday, and then Dave's also invited me to be one of the celebrity runners in the mile. I think the, right. I think the mile race is after the 10K, and so there's a couple of dozen of us there, and, and I was happy to be chosen as one of the uh, quote-unquote celebrity runners to do that. Yeah, so I mean, your trajectory here is, like I said, is really similar to so many other men and women I know who turn 35, you know, they're overweight, 35, I'm just picking a number, but somewhere in there, and they go, geez, I got to do something, right, uh, to get healthier. And typically, there's a big surge of enthusiasm where you do too much too fast and you hurt yourself. Have you been through the, the injury cycle? No, I, I think I've done a really good job in taking my time. And I, I've had a coach now for a couple of years, Brian uh, Hammond out of New York City, and he's done a really good job in kind of making sure that I haven't taken any crazy leaps. And I was planning on doing my Ironman last year, but I realized, I think, pretty quickly that I still needed another year of some smart training and some kind of benchmarks to make. And, and so I pulled back and, and I thought, what better year to do it than the year that I turned 50? Wow, that's amazing because most people will, once they get that bug, you know, the enthusiasm, whether it's triathlon or running or whatever, they'll they'll find out what their limit is by breaking themselves, right? No, so good for you. I good that way. Yeah, good for you for getting a coach, too, because to, um, that's what I find is the most important part of a coach for me is to keep me from breaking myself. Yep. All right, keep you from doing something stupid. Yep. So as we uh, move you towards the exit here, what organizations, websites, links, you know, what what would you like people to check out? Well, my Twitter handle and Instagram hand, handle is all one word, Dwarf Paratri, and people can see me there. I run as a member of Achilles International, specifically Achilles New York City. Right. And then uh, Work Live Try, that's my coach, Brian Hammond, and I've really had some luck with seven cycles, made me the bike that I'm using right now that I just got. Uh, they did a great job fitting me. Uh, on a really good machine and champion systems is, is helping out. And so is blue 70. Like I've really had a lot of uh, help from people that want to reach out and kind of join me on this journey. That's great. So when did you do New York? Was that last year? The New York marathon? Yeah. I've done that. New York city. I've done that twice. I did it in 13 and 14. 14. I did it in 14. That was the windy day. And I actually got my Boston qualify that race. Yeah, it was kind of sunny, kind of windy. Yep. Um, and the morning when we got up, though, it was super windy, right? Windy and cold yep. out on the bridge. Yep. Um, so that <laughs> I can imagine uh, that that would be a struggle for everybody there. I, think, I actually um, think my uh, shorter height helped a little bit. I was able to maybe hide behind some other runners. It tucked behind somebody. So the Achilles um, International is, is really big at New York City Marathon, so you must have been able to to hook up and meet a lot of those guys there. Oh, yeah. I run with them as often as I can. I go to New York City and do the triathlon every summer in July, and we all race together, and, and I'm in a number of other races with them. So they're, yeah, just, they're my team. Just, yeah, if you would, just give, give me the, like, the 200 words on Achilles and what they do, because there's a, a big opportunity for participation for um, runners who are looking to get involved in something or help of any kind of ability in that organization. So um, tell, tell us about Achilles real quick. So basically, Achilles International, they, they reached out to me after I did the New York City Triathlon in 2012. And they're a group that um, basically they were started by Dick Trom, who's an amputee. And he you know started doing races and specifically the marathon. I believe he was actually the motivation for Terry Fox to run across Canada. And 
what happened uh, is they're, they're basically a group that deal with physically challenged runners or runners dealing with brain injury. Um, they have a whole segment of their uh, running population called the Freedom Team, which are uh, injured veterans who've come back from Iraq or Afghanistan, loss of a limb or, or brain injury or whatever, and then a lot of visually impaired athletes. And what they do is they try with a lot of their mobility-impaired athletes to pair them up with a guide. And so they'll run with a guide or a handler at a triathlon. I usually don't run with a guide just because I started this on my own and, and haven't seen the need for it. But a lot of people can volunteer for that organization by hooking up with them in their local city and finding out where they run and working as a guide. You can also fundraise and do the New York City Triathlon or the New York City Marathon or the New York City Half Marathon and raise money for the organization as well. Right. And I remember seeing a whole bunch of them when I was running. And, uh, you know, I can remember yelling, go Achilles, right? Yeah, there's dozens of them that run in, in New York City, a lot of them that run in Boston. And, you know, we're all over the place. And they've done a lot for me. You know, they've supported me. They've brought me into an environment with a lot of like-minded and uh, athletes who kind of are all doing it just to get out there and show that, again, it doesn't matter what kind of physical shell you have. As long as you're getting out there and doing your best, that's all that really matters. Yeah, and it can be a, a really rewarding experience for the guides. I know, you know, talking to Eric, we were talking about Eric before, when they do the bike, they'll do it on a tandem bike yep. sometimes. And then when they do the swim, they'll do it with a tether. Yep. And then when they do the run, they'll do it with a tether as well. And it's sort of a teamwork thing that is uh, very rewarding for both runners, well, uh, both athletes. It, so It is. It really is. And I know, uh, like I said, I've, I've seen Eric race before. In New York City, I think, was the first time I raced together with him. He's a great guy, uh, and he also works with Team with a Vision, which is another group that I know he races with. And uh, it's all about getting out there and just kind of doing your best in the environment and that you live in. Yeah, he kicked my ass in that uh, triathlon that I ran. I did an Olympic with him last year. I passed Brian in the run, but uh, Eric, Eric kicked my ass in the swim and the bike. I couldn't catch him. I know Eric is struggling right now because he not struggling physically. He he had a great um, finish in his first Ironman and finished as the fastest visually impaired athlete to ever do a full Ironman. And now Kona has a restriction where uh, physically challenged athletes are only admitted to Kona through a lottery. And so even though he's the fastest in his division, the only way he's going to get to Kona is if he gets picked. And huh. it's a real shame because I, I really think he deserves to be there simply just by yeah. his results. Yeah, he does. All right. Well, I'll let you go. I'll let you get on with your uh, teaching schedule. Thanks for your time today, John. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And uh, I'll edit this up and we'll get it off to the interwebs and uh, see what we can do. All right. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. -bye. Yep. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Telling a better story. A pep talk for your team. Breaking it down. For this post, I am going to walk you through some shop talk on how to put together a compelling presentation or speech. I will set it up for you. I will present it as I would in real life, and then I'll break down the different mechanics and structures that I used and why. Now, I don't consider myself a born storyteller, and I'm certainly not an extrovert, but like anything else, the techniques and structures of speaking 
whether in front of a big room or standing at the bar, are things you can learn and practice. And like everything, the more you learn, the more you use the tools, the more you practice, well, the better you get. I hardly ever try to improvise a speech off the cuff, even if it is something mundane like a talk with an employee or a telephone call with a client. At the very least, I will have an objective and talking points written out. For any speaking engagement, I will start with my objective, and then I will think about the theme that supports that objective, and then I will lay out a rough outline of the flow, and then I'll sit down and I'll write out a full script using the techniques that we'll talk about here. And then I will practice reading it through for time and to test the effectiveness. Then I will go off script and practice remembering my way through the same speech without notes and see where I get followed up. So now I'm going to give you a speech and see if you can listen for the theme. See if you know what my objective is and see if you can hear the techniques that I'm using. So ready? Here we go. Who here has ridden a bike, or even better, taught a child how to ride a bike. Me too. I remember teaching my kids how to ride a bike. Remember those first wobbly pushes and scraped knees? Remember when they finally figured it out, and it was like you taught them how to fly? So I have a normal road bike that I ride. But my favorite thing to ride is my mountain bike. I ride on the trails up here where I live in New England. Occasionally, I'll do 100K or 100-mile races. And these rides and races, they have technical sections with lots of roots and rocks and steep uphills and steep downhills. And you might think that the hardest parts are the uphills. And it's true, they're hard. But really... The hardest part to master is the downhills. So picture it. Here, here we are. We're holding on for dear life, flying at 20 miles an hour or faster down a hill that's covered with big rocks and roots and other obstacles. And there's, there's tree trunks inches from you on either side or maybe a terrifying drop-off into a ravine. And if you crash, it's going to hurt. And if you crash... You may break something, maybe something important. And if you crash, there will be blood. It's very important not to crash. What do you think the number one reason people crash in these downhill sections is? Is it the speed? Is it the obstacles? Is it their technique? No. The number one reason people crash on these steep downhills is fear. That's it. If you're afraid of crashing, you will crash. You have to commit. You have to go all in in the moment. You have to trust your training. You have to stay in the moment. And you have to relax into that flow state where you see the trail unfolding in front of you in slow motion. And you flow down the path. And the same is true of the obstacles. If there's a big rock in the middle of the trail, the surest way to hit that rock is to focus on it. 
If you're crossing a narrow ledge or a narrow bridge, you need to focus on the center of the bridge. If you start thinking about or being afraid of riding off the edge of the narrow bridge, you will, sure enough, do just that. You see, in essence, whether or not you crash is dependent on your inner dialogue. It is dependent on the story you tell yourself. You can't control the steepness of the hill. You can't control whether there is a rock in the trail. And you can't control the width of that bridge. All you can control is what's going on in your own head. The narrative you tell yourself as you are hurtling down that hill, dodging obstacles, that narrative manifests your reality. You create your outcome with your inner narrative. The same is true in our lives and in our work, in our craft. Our inner dialogue greatly impacts our results. But more importantly, our inner dialogue, the stories we make up for ourselves, impact those around us and our organization. Everyone in this room, whether we like it or not, is a leader. You are on stage. The rest of the organization takes a cue from you, your attitude, and your narrative. And this week we're going to be launching new products. We're going to be talking about what works and what doesn't. We're going to be brainstorming innovations that we can use going forward. And as you go through the next couple days, you're going to be interacting with the rest of the team. And I want you to be cognizant of the stories you're telling. I want you to act like the thought leaders that you are. You have a choice to make. You can bitch about things that don't work or people who don't measure up or bad decisions that were made by management. You'll certainly hear all of those stories being told. Or you can choose to tell a better story. A story about how excited you are about the fantastic new products we get to sell. A story about how psyched you are with the impactful, positive way we get to help our customers. A story about how grateful you are to be working with such a high-quality team. That's my challenge to you this week. That's my ask. Recognize that moment when someone wants to drag you into a bitch session, and you, you know it, you know it'll happen, and be a leader. Tell a compelling story. Tell a better story. Because although all of our trails have roots and rocks, if we focus on those, we'll crash. If we focus on the path forward, we can fly. Right, so that was the speech, or the talk. So what was my objective here? What was my objective? What was I trying to accomplish? Well, my objective with this speech was to, or this talk, was to positively influence the chatter at this event. So what was my theme? So my theme was, Tell a better story. Tell a better narrative. And here are some of the techniques that I purposely wrote into the structure of this talk. So if you remember the first sentence, it was, who here has ridden a bike or taught a child to ride a bike? 
So in that first sentence, in that first comment, that brief opening paragraph, I draw the audience in with a universal statement. I connect to them because everybody's ridden a bike. And most of them have taught someone how to ride a bike or at least know what that is like. So that's a universal thing. And I connect them with a shared, universal, highly emotional moment when your child learns to ride a bike. And I transition that paragraph on the word fly because I'm going to call back to that at the end. Then I transition from this into my own story, and I keep the story short, but when I tell the bit about going down a hill, I add a lot of detail, and I act it out to put them in the seat with me and feeling the terror of (laughs) screaming down that hill. And then I use repetition on the word crash to make my point, to, to really pound it in, that there's consequences, right? That's the point I'm trying to make. When I ask, why do people crash, I use the rule of three. Is it the speed? Is it the obstacles? Is it their technique? You will see and hear many places where I use repetition or the rule of three to flow the points. This is very common artifice in speech making. You will also hear places where I pause for effect or I change my cadence. And this is typically right before or right after an important word or point. A pause is silence, and silence, when used appropriately, is like a sledgehammer. Humans are naturally alerted by silence. Then I put my call to action in place using very short and direct phrases. And at the end, I summarize by calling back to the word fly that I opened with, and I try to make an emotional connection. So, As a practice, go listen through it again and see if you can hear me working. See if you can notice the the fingerprints on this, this talk now. And anyone can write for effect in giving a talk. It's all technique and practice. If you put any effort at all into it, you'll be better than 80% of everyone else. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, your stride may not be as long as mine. And it may have taken you more steps, but you have managed to make it to the end of episode 4-341 of the Run Run Live podcast. Next episode will be our ninth anniversary, nine-year anniversary. Who would have imagined that? That first piece for the first episode I remember recording in my old truck after running the Mount Washington road race, then running back down which ironically is just about the same as the Grand Canyon, just in reverse. It's been quite a ride. I signed up for a Spartan Beast race in September. Hopefully we can get Joe on the show to talk about his new book at some point. So the Beast is around a half marathon-ish, 12 miles-ish in distance with 30-plus obstacles in it. And they have told me it takes people in decent shape two and a half hours to do this. Now, I can run 12 miles in an hour and a half, so I don't know what these Spartan people are doing with that extra hour. Must be a lot of standing around involved, right? Hey, I've been training hard. I can do almost three pull-ups now. (laughs) They make you buy insurance when you sign up. This might not end well. But 
that's not until September, so I have to find something else to train for. I'm thinking a nice technical trail 50K. I've never run the 50K distance officially, so it's an automatic PR for me. And it will be good base training if I want to try to race a marathon in the fall. So let me know if you have an interesting trail 50K I can run in late July or August. I'm still trying to catch up from my May, my May madness. I feel good. I like the way the strength training makes you feel strong. I guess it's probably a guy thing to like the feel of your newly found muscles and your clothes as you walk around. I have not traveled the last couple of weeks, which has allowed me to catch up on my sleep and get my diet and biorhythms back to normal, whatever normal is. Running in my trails, working in my garden, mowing the lawn, you get the picture. Domestic bliss. The pollen has been really bad this year. When you come out in the morning, the cars are covered in yellow dust and it's giving me a runny nose and a headache, but it's okay. So to take you out, we talked a bit about telling a good story today and being aware of your inner narrative. I had to learn this lesson over <laughs> again the last couple of weeks myself. I was in a situation where another person was asking me for details about some project I was working on. I won't give you too much information, but my inner narrative went nuts and I got very defensive why are they questioning me? Why do they care about what I'm doing? This is my responsibility. I'll handle it. Why question me? Do you think I can't do my job? Are you trying to make me look bad? I was really wrapped around the axle. I talked myself into being quite angry. I made up several scenarios in my head where I would wait for the next time this person asked for detail on something and got into what I was doing. And I would call them out in front of our peers and put them in their place and have a big show of force and a big scene. Luckily for me, I had a chance to bounce the issue off a friend and quickly realized I was letting someone else influence my inner narrative. What I do or don't do is under my control, and what other people do or don't do isn't. The solution is to keep doing what you think is right, to keep going on the path that is your path. At some point, it might come to me saying something like, no, I'm not going to do that because it's not a priority for me, or I'm doing this because I believe it's the best path, or whatever, to keep someone from co-opting my agenda. But I'm not going to let someone else's narrative intrude on my own, or cause me to go on the defensive or change my approach. If I'm doing what I believe is the right thing, then I've got nothing to worry about. I can sleep at night. So it's your ship, you're the captain, you can't control the world, you can't control other people, but you can control your own inner narrative and the way you react to the world and to other people. So choose to tell a better story, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die, so Ned, he left. So hard it made him cry. Cause I'm a fun guy. That's the that's the punchline to a joke. Yeah, two mushrooms walk into a bar or something like that.